0: Coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast.
1: I had one of those flies that I developed, the Hampshire Warden, sitting on my, my table in a, in a frame. And some guy came over, and he started in and had an audience with him on how I didn't know how to tie that fly. And he just went on and on about, you don't know what you're doing. And and then, yeah, yeah he had no idea. He had no idea... The connection between me and that fly and finally someone grabbed him and said you know i don't remember what his name was said that's scott he was the one who developed that fly
0: that was scott byron with a funny story about the pattern police back to the northeast with some classic flies and classic stories today on the wet fly swing fly fishing show
2: Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today.
0: Hey, how you doing today? Thank you for stopping by the show. It'd be great if you can to share this episode out with uh, one other person if you can today. Uh, Click that uh, share button down in the bottom in your app and just uh, send a text message. Send it out if you enjoy, if you think you're going to enjoy the show or come back at the end. And uh, if you enjoy a little bit of history, then you probably will enjoy this episode as we mix in a little bit of fly tying as well. Bear Vault has the perfect solution to keep your provisions secure while heading into the backcountry this year. Bear Vault builds a rugged locking canister that keeps bears and other wild animals away from your food. Proper food storage is one key to an epic trip in the backcountry. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash vault to check out a must-have solution for your next outdoor trip today. That's wetflyswing.com slash b-e-a-r-v-a-u-l-t. Bear vault. Lake Lady Rods builds distinctive, unique, and custom rods, each created one at a time to the exact specifications for you. Lake Lady only uses world-class, line components and products. You can uh, check in with Chris and check out some of the good stuff he has going. I've got a super sweet nine foot four weight that is exciting and beautiful all in the same package. If you want to check this out and check out what Chris has going, head over to wetflyswing.com slash lake lady right now. That's L-A-K-E-L-A-D-Y, Lake Lady. Check it out right now. Scott Byron is here to take us into some history of fly tying and names that have paved the way for some major fly patterns and some books. We dig into some tips on tying classic flies, who the company uh, right now that's producing the highest quality hackles for some of these old school flies and, uh, and some big historic names along the way. We're tracking down a few more guests and a few more historical nuggets for you today. So here you go, Scott Byron from nhflytire.com.
2: How's it going, Scott? It's going great. How are you, Dave? I'm good. I'm good. We've got we've got sunny weather here today, so we're uh, I'm excited for the day. It's always good when we get started and, and there's sunshine out. So uh, so how about you? How, how are things looking up in your neck of the woods?
1: Yeah, we're raining right now, um, and we're uh, you know we had an interesting winter. We didn't have a whole lot of snow here, so. Um, you know they're already talking drought and things like that, but uh, most of the ice is starting to pull off the lakes in the middle of the of New England, and and shortly it'll be pulling off the uh, the upper New England and northern New England area.
2: So it'll be, yeah,
1: weather is weather, right? It changes every day. So
2: I know. I know it's interesting you say that because you're up in New Hampshire. I'm over on the West Coast right now, and, and actually yesterday I was talking to somebody who was saying the same thing. They're like, "Well, we're expecting a drought this year, even though it doesn't, you know, I mean, like doesn't seem like it." But I mean, we just had out here, we just had like a, a bunch of rain this this winter. But anyways, that that's weather. And today we're focusing on, uh, you know, what you have going with these classic flies and some of the history. I. I love the history whenever I get a chance to dig into it, and we've had a couple of history lessons and episodes. And today we're going to dig into some streamers. So before we get into all that, you have a, a website. You have you do a lot of stuff out there in this space. Um, take us really quickly back to how you first got into fly fishing, and then we'll take it into the classic streamers.
1: Yeah, I was really lucky because uh, my uh, family, my uh, grandfather, was um, he was from Berlin, New Hampshire, and Berlin, New Hampshire was a mill town was one of, uh, it supplied all the, uh, the newsprint paper for the entire country at one point. And they had mills up there, and of course, they were polluting the water and whatnot. But above the mills, they did all this logging on this one river up there called the Androscoggin River that uh, uh, there was tremendous fishing. It was incredible. And, um, you know, they would move the logs down every year, and I, I think they stopped moving the logs in the 60s. But my grandfather had a camp. He had one of the first camps up there that was uh, on the um, Scoggin, up just below Arrow. And uh, I, you know, as a young boy, I was, you know, not allowed to be on the boat with the older guys when they went out and fished. And so my dad would go out there and fish and my grandfather would go out and fish and uncles and whatnot. And and I would, you know, stay back on the dock because it was supposed to be safe. And uh, I, one day I was digging around and I found a fly rod um, in, in the uh, camp and I didn't know what I was doing, but I went out there and I started um, fooling around and uh, I caught a couple trout and these guys came back in and they were like, you know, you know, Jack and they were French Canadians, so they weren't speaking much English and they were talking huh. about the lack of fish. And I said, "Oh, look, I got fish here!" And they were like, "What?" And that's kind of how it started. And at the, about the same time, there was a small fly tying uh, kit in the uh, in the camp. It had to have been my father's, and uh, I started fooling around with it, and um, and then it just kind of sprung forward. And I, I've been, you know, I've been fly fishing pretty much exclusively since then I, i you know, I, I certainly there are times when I saltwater fish and mm-hmm. don't fly fish or something like that. But for the most part, you know, even when I bass fish and whatnot, I fly fish. So um, that's how I kind of got into it and it just sprung. I mean the fly tying piece I learned on my own for a long, long time. And then when I was, I, I was a PE teacher in school for 20 years and I would teach the kids how to fly cast in class it was one of the the you know four three or four lessons and people loved it i mean there were there were parents that would come to me and go my kid doesn't want to do anything with me and now they want <laughs> to go fishing you know I, i'm so happy and
2: that's really cool
1: yeah and so i had fly tying uh, clubs and i do a lot of instruction and i got awarded the grant uh, state grant for a traditional arts program probably five years ago, and I was able to study some uh classic New England streamers with another tire we We set up a whole curriculum for us to work on and I really got bitten by the history piece and since mm-hmm. then i've become a um a tire, and I have people who apprentice under me and whatnot but it was it's it's been great, so I was able to dig in and I knew some of these real historic tires. I grew up with one that was two streets over from me in Massachusetts. I went to high school with his daughter and, um, you know, it just uh, all of a sudden it opened up door after door and history and why things were going on and, you know, why these guys were tying this way. And so
2: it's kind of cool. Yeah, that is really cool. No, I love the, I love the high school. I reminds me of my dad. It's similar to the deal when he, he was a teacher in a, kind of a high school and middle school teacher. And he did the same thing. He he would taught them. In fact, you know, I mean, he, the same thing, like fly tying. And it was just this really cool. He was a, you know, he was like a math teacher and stuff. But he would have kids that would, you know, fly fishing was his passion. So before he had the business, he, he kind of taught them all that. But uh, Yeah, and they love it. Yeah, they love it. You find those people that love it. And I remember when I was in high school— because of my dad, I had a bunch of teachers, my teachers who fly fished and they kind of knew my dad. So I was the kid tied flies for my PE teachers back in high school. Right. So
3: it's,
2: it's really a cool little place. So, and and you mentioned the apprentice in the, what was the tire program you, you, you worked on?
1: Yeah. So it was, um, it's part of the national endowment for arts that, uh, in this state, one of the areas that they have available is called traditional arts. And so it encompasses a bunch of different areas. I mean, there's uh, people who do like duck carving, you know, wooden duck carving. And, you know, so what they're trying to do is not lose the art of tying. As all these materials and all these different um, tools come available, you lose some of the construction that originally was done on some of these flies and whatnot and and i have what i call the pattern police that troll out there the internet and they try to find things wrong with every everything you know that's not the way it was done you know and um and you know people don't realize that these tires these older tires they were they weren't as lucky as we were you know their orange feathers Um, depending upon what dye lot it was, it could have been that orange could have swung from dark to bright, um, you know, over the course of, you know, uh, two months. So um, and, you know, a lot of it is how the birds suck up the the dye and their feathers. And, you know, so, you know, it the program was kind of cool because what I did was laid out what tires I wanted to work and look back at some of their information and I was tying there's a big lake here in New Hampshire called Sunapee it's very very historic lake it had its own Sunapee trout in it it doesn't anymore but I was tying a pattern called the purple smelt at a old home day on Lake Sunapee and this older gentleman stood in front of me for about 20 minutes and finally he said where did you find that pattern And Hmm. I said, oh, it's a pattern from a guy from Keene. And I went on and on, and I told him the whole history. He goes, my grandfather used to fish that fly, and that was the only one that caught any fish on this (laughs) lake way back when. And, you know, you learn something. I'm like, okay, sit right down. Tell me about your grandfather. (laughs) You know, know, what was he doing? And you learn all that history. It's going away, and that's why the traditional arts program was kind of, uh,
2: you know, it's kind of cool. That's great. So it's there to secure and document some of the the history, yep. which is amazing. And so we're going to dig into that. I wanted to get into the people – and some of those, you know, some of those people that are probably, you know, gone now, but talk about them. But um, before we get there, let's just go to a classic for those that don't know exactly, you know, a classic streamer, because streamers are pretty popular these days. But what makes a, a classic streamer classic? Just start there and talk, because you see these long hooks, long shanked hooks and, right. you know, kind of big yep. heads. And, yeah, is there anything that you can look at and be, you know, be where the traffic, where the police online look at these flies? What is a classic streamer?
1: Yeah, well, it basically, for the most part, is a, it's trying to imitate a smelt. And our um, the lakes that have the salmon in them up here, the landlocked salmon, have a smelt population, because as the smelt population goes, the salmon go. And so these classic, commonly called rangely streamers, because of the r- rangely main region where they were born, they are all different shades different variations of, uh, smelt or small bait fish that might be in these big, big lakes. And, you know, the colors that you see that often attract people are totally different when the, when the fly gets wet. Um, and people don't realize that, you know, that was the, um, you know, the crux of everything was really, When these things get wet, what they look like and what they look like at different times of the year, different days, when it's overcast, when it's sunny. Remember those, you know, if you're trolling on the top, like right now, when the ice goes out, the smelter are all on top and the salmon are all on top because the water's cold. You know, if it's real bright out, those salmon are looking straight up into the sun. And so, you know, the coloring that they see, the maybe the profile of those uh, Rangely streamers is what they're looking for. You know, some lakes have pin smelt. They're small, um, so you don't have the really long, long hook. Some of the uh, lakes have huge, huge uh, smelt in them, and they use tandems. They use hooks that are, you know, uh put together by wire so that they they give you that longer profile. So that's the, that's what you would consider classic. And I think materials will help it become classic as well. You know, some of the materials have gone away. We just don't get them anymore, Uh, but others, you know um, you know, they've the synthetic stuff has its place and there are people who use it. And there are people who imitate classic streamers with all the synthetic materials, which is fine. Because yeah. in the end, I have a friend who's a retired game warden. He always says, in the end, it's up to the fish, not us.
2: Yeah, it's up to the fish. Yeah, when I, when I think of the classics, I think of just, in general, like you said, a long hook, whatever it is, 3X, 4X long. You've got a thin body, and then you've got this hair wing on top, and then the thread head is like a nice bulbous big, juicy you know, head. That's kind of my picture of it, right? Is that pretty much a, most yeah. of them look... Well, yeah, well, yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, I think back in the 80s, the heads were all big. And the reason was they were tied with 3 aught thread.
3: Oh, and right. now
1: they have thread that's so small, all of a sudden back, you know, early 90s, late 80s, everybody went to a smaller head streamer. But if you go like to the American Museum of Fly Fishing in you ask them to see Kerry Stevens' flies you would look and you'd go oh my god that that really is not what the book you know when you look in a book it looks like well yeah because you know they dress it up with a photography but you know some of these heads were pretty rough most of these tires really great tires were very rough their finished product was to fish with it was not to um, be put in a frame on the wall
2: so a rough tire and uh, how does a rough tire become a great tire? Or, or I mean, you know, if they're tying a rough pattern, how, yeah. how do they get in? Yeah, they're, it catches fish. It catches fish. Bottom line, that's just the yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean that. There's a great. Uh, he's he's been dead for a while. He was he he actually put New Hampshire on the map. Jim Warner. He was from the. Uh, he had a shop in Wolfboro, and he had the Saki smelt, which was a a pattern that had a marabou wing which gave it so much action in the water. And and he had loads of different creative patterns that, um, you know, people would go fishing and they would pass right through New Hampshire and go to Maine. And Jim started to develop these patterns. And all of a sudden people started fishing uh, Lake Winnipesaukee where his, his shop was, but Jim was a rough tire. I I know I have friends who knew him um, and, you know, I have, videos of him tying and you know, his heads weren't beautiful. His, you know, his, the flies might be slightly different each one, um, in size in length, but they caught fish and that's what drove those people. And there were times I can remember, you know, he would say a guy would come into his shop and, you know, he said, I agonized over tying this beautiful gray ghost. And the guy would go up to the board and pull the gray ghost off. He would take it out of the cellophane wrapper, throw it on the ground, put his foot on it, grind it into the ground, <laughs> pay him for the fly, and he said he wasn't 20 yards off my dock, and he already caught some. <laughs> you know, he goes, but, you know, it was just, it, you know, the the way these guys developed their patterns, they were made to fish, they were made to hold up, um, so, you know, they put a lot of effort into gluing them and really making them, um, bulletproof. Cause once a salmon or a big brook trout hits your, your streamer, they rip it to smithereens. And sometimes you can fish all day with a beat up fly and catch more fish than you can with a, with a
2: perfect looking one. So. Yeah. And how do you spell that? That masaki? Well, yeah. Do you know? I'll have to look it up and tell you. I'll go, I'll put it in the show notes. I'm just curious. Um, so um, so you mentioned Jim Warren. I've heard of that name before. You also mentioned the Great Ghost. Who was who the tire behind that one?
1: That was Carrie Stevens. She was a woman from um, from Rangeley, Maine area. And she's, she was even, I mean, she's very interesting. She had oodles of different patterns. She was, her husband was a guide, and she was just in an area where it is, you can't turn around without bumping into another, you know, perfect spot to fish. And, um, but she was, she was a milliner. So she, she used to, um, do the feathers for hats, uh, men's hats, different, different, um, you know, women's, uh, bows and different things like that. Well, Carrie Stevens, she came up with all these great historic patterns that have stood the test of the time. And, but the interesting part was she did not tie with a vice. She held the hook in her hand and assembled everything um, in hand. And so one of the things that she did was she would assemble all her feather pieces before she actually tied them on the hook. And when she did, she created what was, what is known today as the Rangley style, where when they mount the wings, that beautiful wing that you see on the fly... She mounted them. and They were slightly off on the side, not on the top of the shank of the hook. They were probably, you know, two and 10, three and nine when they got mounted. But what it did was the very head of her flies, the first like third of her feathers were very secure because they were all really glued together. And it gave the back of the fly a lot of action. And that, uh, the theory behind that, because no one probably ever thought to ask her, but the theory behind that was that um, it looked more like a fish swimming. And, and then there's a whole line of what they call eastern-type streamers where they actually mount the wings on top of the shank of the hook. And um, those are, you know, they're, they're very effective as well, but it's a slightly different process.
2: Slightly different so yeah. she did that on purpose to tie it on the side, slightly sideways? No, I think she did that. I mean, I can't I, I can only
1: give you what I think in my personal. Um, I think that was the only way that she could really assemble those, but without having a vice, without having bobbins to hold her thread and you know.
2: Yeah. That's cool. And who would be the person if we were gonna talk to somebody to figure to nail that down? Is there anybody out there that know that's connected to Carrie?
1: Well, the the Hilliards wrote a book called Carrie Stevens, a maker of Rangely favorite trout and oh, yeah. salmon flies. They did so much history, uh, you know, father and son. The father has mm-hmm. passed away since, but they did a lot of history and um, information on that. So they probably would have some, you know, greater detail than I have on that because they yeah. just focused. On that, but they there were other people who, there was a curator at the museum, um, the American Museum of Fly uh, Fishing, that took one of her patterns apart with a fellow by the name of Mike Martinique, who's since passed away, and when they took it apart, they realized that she was mounting those wings on the side, and she was adding some different things for stability, and they that changed. All of a sudden, they got that next layer that peeled away the onion to understand a little bit more how everything was constructed. And then there were people who were tying her flies, mounting the wings on top that went, oh, man, that's not the way it works. So, you know, um, we need to do it back the way she did it. And the Hilliards did a great job with that book. It was outstanding. So.
2: Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, I'll put a link to the show notes to that book if I could find it out there. And, and I love this top versus side. This is the stuff, you know, definitely I didn't realize. And it makes sense. Yeah, you put on the side you know obviously the the hook is going to change the way it swims and well we got a couple people here let's go down a little list of of people maybe people in flies that you think um you know are are interesting out there and are we talking if you think of what you know from classic tires from the past i mean are there just are there lots of people or is this a small list of people you think of that are kind of big names
1: i think it's a small list i think there are individual small list of people who had the foundation patterns i guess i would say the ones that really laid the groundwork there's there are definitely niches where there were people in grand lake stream maine that might have had two or three or four patterns that they specifically adapted for that area um, but they weren't as widely um, accepted initially uh, but but you know jim warner carrie stevens they just had tremendous amount of patterns. Uh, I grew up in a town in Massachusetts in Acton. There was a, a guy who lived two streets over from me, Ray Salmon. Ray was uh, really, really plugged in on the um, fishing and fly tying. He developed the Red Ghost and um, did a lot of research on patterns and different things like that. He, Joe Bates, who wrote the classic streamer book on uh, um on streamers he they were great friends, and you know they did they really the, he helped to uh, document some of this stuff that was just eroding away you mm-hmm. know it was a lot you know how fly fishing is we, no one shares the information a lot you know it's a right. secret pattern we can't tell you you know um yeah. and they and unfortunately that's what I found some of these patterns they they had kind of gone away and and people never share them, and so um, you know when a tire passed away, that was it. You
3: didn't, um,
1: yeah. But there was another. There was another fellow from um, Keene, New Hampshire, which is kind of a southwest area here, and he was um, a guy. Philip name Orr Smith, and he was a postman, and he tied flies, and he used to fish in Winnipesaukee and. Sunapee and whatnot in New Hampshire. And he developed a whole series of just, I would say, you know, there's probably a thousand different patterns, but um, to, that are around that are documented. There might be two, 300 left that you could find information on. Every once in a while, someone will call me and go, oh, I, I went to a, an auction and I, I got this right. $3, uh, you know, kit uh, and, and there's these flies from, or a Smith in there. And I'm like, can you tell me about it? And I'm like, send me pictures and I'll fill you in on as much as I can. And every once in a while, there's, you know, you know, there's one that, you know, like I mentioned this purple smelt and there are people who have tied the purple smelt and it they've tied it purple, purple, purple. And it was a lavender. Oh, it was called purple, but it was really lavender wing. And some of these fly, uh, uh, manufacturers, the dyeing companies, they stopped doing lavender. And probably about six years ago, a company named Ewing came to me and said, Hey, could you do us a favor? Could could we market some feathers under your name? But could you come out with some of the traditional colors? So the first one I got was that lavender one. And I said, Hey, can you just get this as close as you possibly can? And I had, I had a few purple smelts that Smith had tied and I sent them the fly, and they, they knocked it out of the park and matched it. And thank goodness, you know, there's been people that were like, gee, I, I always tied it, you know, a traditional purple color, and now I realize it really wasn't that purple. It was uh, a lavender. So he had just tremendous, you know, uh, colors and different patterns. But they were working patterns. They weren't ones that you are going to, again, from and stick on the wall they
2: were patterns that really you know were
1: were producers
2: in the in the different lakes that was aura smith right and how do you spell that aura
1: it's o-r-a
2: oh yeah traditional smith yep
1: yeah and he was a older older fellow he's passed away a, a while back um but his streamers, there are still a lot of them around. You see them every once in a while. There was a big auction with them.
2: Yeah. What was one?
1: He had a really cool um, fly. You'll ask me how to spell it. I probably can do this one for you. It was called the Apache. And basically what it was, was it, it's, it's just kind of a cool history story. He tied about 18 golden pheasant crests for the wing of this fly. The body of the fly was basically a silver with a red uh, ribbing. And um, he had a a guinea hen kind of roof, just short roof on the uh, golden pheasant. And, um, you know, he had, he had developed this fly and he was up on Lake Winnipesaukee and he was, he was fishing with it and he had a tremendous day and, he came off the dock and somebody asked him, you know, what's the name of that fly? And he said, uh, Can Apache. And then I remember um, listening to him talk one time and he, someone said, well, how that? He goes, well, I was staying in the Can Apache camps in Wolfboro. And, um, you know, the, I had developed this fly and I was just trying it out, see how it worked. And it worked really well. Someone asked me, I called it the Can Apache. So, Um, there's a road still up there. The camps are gone, but there's a road up there called Apache road. And, uh, but that was one of his probably, uh, really, you know, I would say well-known patterns. He also had a Maynard Marvel. There's two Maynard's Marvels in New Hampshire, um, two different styles, but I'd say the Apache. he was really, really kind of a cool, uh, cool fly, very
2: high producer.
1: Very high producer.
2: And the purple smelt was also his?
1: Yep, purple smelt was his. Yep.
0: Angler's Coffee. Roast a full range of coffee with one goal in mind. You know it, delivering excellent coffee to every single angler. Responsibly sourced from farms using sustainable growing practices, you can rest easy knowing you're doing your part. And also roast and shipped within 48 hours to assure freshness. I recently tried the Kenya AA coffee from Anglers, and it was very good as well. I know this is Joe's personal favorite, and it might be mine soon. How to describe it? It seems like all the coffee is just smooth. Joe can probably do a better job trying to explain um, all the goodness inside, but you're going to have to check it out for yourself. If you want to support this podcast and support a sustainable, amazing coffee with great-tasting coffee, you gotta check out anglers they got it going anglers coffee right now wetflyswing.com slash anglers will direct you right over to anglers coffee check it out you support this podcast by clicking over to anglers online
2: and you mentioned and i want to follow up keep going on this list here but you mentioned uh ewing uh the feathers and i i think i connected with them at one of the shows uh, talk about how that how that came to be is i i know you they're kind of um you know you hear a lot about the the Whiting farms and some of these other big companies, but they've got some good stuff going out there don't they
1: oh yeah um Ewing uh both doug and cole uh, are um involved they own the company and and whatnot and um yeah they- uh they reached out to me about um uh, you know streamer patterns streamers for for some reason became kind of reemerged and there was a a large popularity um and, you know, uh, different companies, uh, different, uh, growers, their birds develop different and they, their wings get different shapes to them and different colors and whatnot. And so I had said to, to them, I'm, I'd be happy to help you. I, you know, I don't get anything out of it monetarily. I just wanted to make sure that we didn't lose these you know, colors and whatnot. And so I sent them some shapes of feathers that I was looking for. And, um, and I sent them about 22 colors, the first round, and they came back with, um, probably 30 colors. And out of that, I'd say about 18 to 20 were just right on. Absolutely. And so we dyed them up and I started tying with them and we got them locally available in New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and Maine, just because that's one of the areas where these flies are very popular. So that, you know, the market's higher for that, those feathers. Um, and you know, we had shops like North country Angler or up in North Conway that had them. And uh, I know Deddy's has them as well. Yeah. Uh, but they, they, um, they started to get traction. And so I would, you know, try to pick off like every couple months, a couple new colors and, and put them out there or experiment with colors and different things like that. And Ewing really has done an excellent job. They're very responsive. Um, they're very easy to work with their birds are, are consistently this, the, uh, the same shape, uh, with their feathers. And so we started to, you know, uh, work together and, and it's been great you know, they've got a pretty good presence and they just don't make the feathers for, for, you know, the ones that I tie with, they have a whole line, they saltwater feathers that flat wings that the saltwater fly tires love, and they have a whole line of hens. And, um, the one thing that they didn't have for the longest time was badger. And I was always clamoring with them, about badger and. They actually went out and bought a line of badger, and um, that's. They sent me a picture of the chicks the other day, so very shortly we'll have some badger to play around
2: with. There you go, so, yeah. so they're rolling, they're rolling. So good, yeah. that's a good resource, and I'll I'll put a link to them as well. Yeah, uh, well, let's keep going on this list. So we got a few people here. Who else should we th- be thinking about when we think of the classic streamers?
1: Yeah. So um, the other, you know, one of the other, other uh, tires that he passed away just recently in, in the New Hampshire area was, um, was a fellow by the name of Ellis Hatch. He, I think if I have to look back, he was probably the last great production tire that we had here in, in, um, in New Hampshire. I mean, it just would produce flies like for everybody in New England. I, I remember um, talking when he passed away. I remember having a conversation with Tom Rosenbauer at Orvis and just said, do you know, Ellis passed away. He goes, nicest guy I ever met. Um, he used to come in with his flies to Orvis when I was running the retail shop. And he said, you know, he would just lay them out and we would just, we never said no. They were all, every one of them looked exactly the same. Well, Ellis was great because he, he um, had a, Uh, you know, a connection with some of these, he kind of bridged my generation with some of the generation of the original fly tires. And he knew some of these guys. And I can remember being, you know, going over and sitting with him for a day, um, number of times. And he would, you know, he would, you know, just spew out history. And it was like, you would sit there and go, this guy, you know, one of his fingers has, more knowledge about fly tying than I'll ever have in my entire body. It was just, it was amazing. So he was, he was another guy that, you know, he would tie some patterns that you never would see because they kind of just went away. And, and then, you know, there were other tires, like I said, that had patterns, small, um, numbers of patterns that were out there. It just wasn't the yeah. volume and, you know, uh, Eddie Reef had the rib smelt and, uh, Herb Welsh had the, uh, the ghost, a ghost pattern from Rangeley. And, and, you know, there are all these little nook tires that, uh, Rangeley region fly shop. There was a guy by the name of George Fletcher, and he had a, a whole bunch of different patterns that, you know, he tied and he was the one who dyed all the feathers and provided Kerry Stevens with all the, all the Mm. materials for her flies. So, um, they're just, there. are Mike Martinique was a, uh, a fellow who passed away probably in the last, uh, five years. And he had just, he was just beautiful streamers and he fished all over New England. He knew Jim Warner. He, you know, he was able to be around. Um, he was another bridge. Um, that knew some of the older patterns that were still still around and, uh, and the guys, uh, male or female, that tied them, um, that uh, developed them. And, and some of the, you know, why were you doing this? Why did this pattern come come about? And, yeah. um, you know, like Carrie Stevens, she's patterns that are, are named, you know, Rapid River. And that was a fly that was used on the Rapid River.
2: All right. Well, let's go down that for a second. So let, let's let's take it to the flies. Let's just go. Let's go to say if you had to grab your you know whatever ten flies that are the classic you know fly. You mentioned one obviously the gray ghost. Uh, but what would yeah? Those the gray be
1: ghost if, would be the number one.
2: Number one. And why is the gray ghost? Why is the gray ghost number one?
1: Well, I think it probably covers the 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 coloring of a smelt when it's in the water. Maybe uh, 70%, 75% of the time. One of the things that, um, people don't realize, and this is why the coloring of some of the flies have changed, um, is the, the salmon sometimes will run the smelt up on these sandbars to try mm-hmm. to ambush them. Cause they're, they're, uh, both are, they, they kind of move in schools. And so, um, They'll an- try to ambush them up on these sandbars where they can kind of pin them and, and just, you know, we'll troll for, for salmon, not to get off the subject, but you'll catch one, and you'll bring it to the boat and net it, and you'll look, and you'll be pulling your hook out, and there'll be 30 smelt in the salmon's mouth that they oh, haven't wow. even
3: digested. No kidding.
1: Just, it's like, it's dinner time for the next two weeks, and we are just going to eat. And that's oh, wow. the, you know, mentality. And so when they would ambush these smelt up, they would, their coloring would change. You know, it would go from that gray of the gray ghost, that gray kind of bluish, purplish, yellowish huey color. Yep. Um, it would go to more of a tannish color. Um, um, and, um, you know, they're almost, you almost, when you get a smelt in your hand, you almost look at it and say, you can almost see through this thing. Um, you know they're mm. very yep. delicate. There's not much to them, but I think that's why the gray goes because ninety percent of the time these smelt are moving in a pack uh, and they're they're uh, on the you know very close to the top of the water early season and they they look gray, and I think that's you know that's why that pattern is so um, effective. So and it stands. Yeah. It's stood the test of time. People have used the feather wing. They've used marabou for the wing. They've used synthetic for the wing. Um, but, it, but, that, but that gray coloring has stood the test of time.
2: And it seems like the feather wing is the classic. I mean, that when you think of it, yep. right, that is the classic wing. It's the feather wing. Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah,
1: it's just harder to tie and it's harder to get it to be as exact. So I think as time went on, um, I remember Jim Warner had a pattern that he made out of marabou, and he was trying to wean people off of the gray ghost and onto um, this uh, marabou pattern because obviously it was easy to tie, faster to crank right out. He would, he you know, he said never worked. You know, the yeah, so feather worked. wing was what everyone no. wanted. Yeah. No. Yeah. The feather
3: yeah. Wing so gray cool.
1: ghost would be, I think, number one and. I think everybody has their opinion on what yeah. you know the ranking would be, but yeah, I yeah. think I would say the Winnipesaukee smelt would be another one that had a white wing with a, a silver pheasant uh, crest on the top of it that, uh, and a, and a really strong silver body. And boy, I'll tell you that um, that fly when it gets wet, it, it's, It is just so slick. And um, boy, that is a very high producer. And it's a a pattern that's really strong. The one I talked about, the can Apache, that's another one. You know, it gives you that yellow goldish color uh, with some red. And that red sometimes is the trigger because a lot of times when you're trolling for salmon, they'll hit your fly and then they'll circle back around and then they'll, they'll come up and they'll actually engulf it because they will injure those, those smell because they're moving so fast and they'll look for those, that, that injured one. So sometimes a pattern with a little red in it will be, um, one that, you know, they'll, it'll look injured. So they'll come after it. Um, and then there, you know, there are patterns like there's a pattern that Carrie Stevens had called the morning glory. And, it, it's probably one that you don't see. Uh, you, you see it in a frame. I guess that's the easiest thing. You don't see it in a fly shop that often, but boy, oh boy, the first two weeks of salmon trolling season, that fly is money. Uh, it just really, really, really works. And, and then flies that had uh, kind of, you know, she had one called the, the blue dragon, she had uh one called the General MacArthur. They had like a almost like a baby blue uh coloring with it. Um the blue dragon had orange with the baby blue, the General MacArthur, which was for General MacArthur, who was World War II general. Um that had a had a grizzly uh wing blunt in in with it. And the grizzly gave you the par marks that you would see in a small bait fish. And um you know, people see the general MacArthur again in the frame. Um, and, but boy, oh boy, that fly produces, it's huge. And, um, you know, and then there were flies like Indian rock that she had. There's a, there's a, um, a camp and, um, up on, uh, one of the the lakes up there in the Rainsley region. And there's a rock that they call Indian rock. And this was a, all of the orange, reddish base, just brook trout magnet, <laughs> you know? Uh, and every once in a while, I'll, I get an order. I'll, I'll, somebody will call me and say, you know, can you tie Indian rock? And I'm like, yes, yeah, sure. I love that fly.
2: And it it worked. What does what that describe that Indian rock? We can look it up. We'll put it in the show notes as well. But describe what that one looks like.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a... Um, the best way to, uh, to describe it is it, it, it's, it's tied on, um, you know, it's tied on like a 9X. Um, oh, wow. Uh, yeah. So most of Carrie Stevens were 9, 10X, 7X hooks. And, um, and like the hooks today, Partridge is the leader in those long hooks. A lot of companies gotten away from those, those hooks. She was tying on Alcock hooks and the Alcock, there's an English, we'll digress here, a little hook history quick. Yeah. yeah. So um, Partridge was in Redditch, England, and there were a number of hook manufacturers. They, they just didn't make hooks. They made all sorts of different wire-based products, but uh, Alcock was one of them. And in World War II, uh, during the Blitz, some of the, most of these places got uh, bombed because they stopped making hooks and they were making armaments for the, um, for uh, yep. the, the English. And um, so the Germans bombed the the factories and the only one that survived that went back into business was Partridge. And that's why they have that heritage of hooks. Cause they, they really um, you know, they continue to manufacture those long trolling hooks along with all their other hooks. And they've always done it. You know, today they use Swedish steel, not Japanese steel, um, much stronger. Um, it's like almost impossible to break those hooks. And, and um, you know, they will bend before they will snap, where some of the more modern hooks that are out there, they will snap and break. It's just, you know, whatever. Yeah. So the, the 9X, um, 10X, hook um, that the Indian Rock was um, tied on it was a long brook trout hook and you know it had uh, peacock curl, which is always used as kind of a lateral line imitation of a lateral line but it has um, you know it's got some uh, red hackles that are flanked by an olive hackle and Mm. when you look at that when it's dry it kind of gives you that almost like christmas tree you know mm, christmas mm-hmm. green and red but when it gets wet it gives you that coloring kind of like the bait fish that was getting moved up on the sandbar it's kind yeah. of a uh you know an olive olive color and it's it just uh it's got a white belly most of Stevens flies had a white belly underneath them because most bass fish have a white belly, you know? Um, and, uh, but boy, you know, time and time again, there are people who will come back and say, man, I never knew that fly. Uh, you know, I saw that. I, you know, I, I grabbed one of them. You tied up a bunch of different flies and you threw one of those in and that was the best producer I had all, all week. You know?
2: Yeah. It's a cool looking fly. Yeah. It's pretty much yeah. red. It's red, and it's got the, uh, yeah, the peacock underneath, like you said.
3: Yep, and, yep. uh
2: and, and it's a good, fly. is that one, and it's got, yeah, the little white underbelly and yep. and the long hook. Okay, yeah, that's really cool. So that is a good example. I mean, that's traditional. And when you're looking at those hackles, if you're trying to tie one of these, is it a challenge to find the right hackles? What do you recommend to get, to get that good hackle that makes the streamer pattern?
1: Yeah, so well, well, Ewing has them. So that's the
2: you know the Ewing line that, that have the um, the streamer
1: saddles. Um, this you know, saddle, so, it's just
2: a big streamer saddle you just ordered. Yeah, uh, they, that's what, yeah,
1: yeah, they have a originally. I didn't realize this when it was happening,
2: but originally
1: they um, produced a line under under the tire Mike Martinique, and then at some point both of them you know both went their own way, and then at some point they came to me and asked me. And I think Mike was probably really involved with, you know, the early feather construction and coloring and different things like that. But a good um a good saddle hackle is gonna be one that you're getting a cape. So you're not just getting the feathers loose because yep. typically you're taking feathers from the left side as you look at it, and they will be opposed by the feathers. From the right side when you construct it, um, yeah. and you want to look at the shape of the feathers. Uh, you don't, you know. Today, a lot of people more is is what they want, and less is more in fly tying. Um, so you you want to make sure that the feathers have the right shape, that their stems aren't uh, like telephone poles, because some of these flies will have four feathers on each side to build a wing. And those stems, Whoa. if they're too big, yeah, I mean, you're tying, you're trying to take these big, uh, I, I, when I teach classes, I'm always telling them, you got to think of these as rods. They're like rods, and you're putting rods up against the, a round hook. And if you don't have the the whole base constructed the right way, it's never going to come together the right it's It's yeah. going to start rolling. It's going to fall apart. You're going to... Be, your hair will hurt by, this, you know, the second wrap you have on it. So you, you have to really, you know.
2: Where would somebody go if they were going to, you know, if they wanted to learn to tie these correctly? Is there? I mean, obviously you have classes, but is there, what, what resource or where would you direct them if they're listening now? They're in some part of the country and they wanted to learn more about this.
1: Yeah, I, I will tell you, there are a lot of different organizations that will bring in tires to demonstrate and to teach. And I will say in all honesty that I have been more involved with getting a phone. uh, I'll give you a funny example, Ludlow, England. There is, they do not tie classic streamers and fish with classic streamers in England. Right. They reached out to me, their fly tying club. And they said, Hey, would you do a demonstration online? Next thing I know, the guys from Ewing and the guys from Partridge are calling on the phone going, you know, you did this demonstration. All of a sudden we are selling more feathers and more streamer hooks in England than we've ever done in our entire life. (laughs) Um, But I think the whole thing is you can, there are a lot of YouTube videos that are very good, but if you can sit with a tire, even if it's on zoom and watch them do it, and listen to why each part is being done. That will help you to learn how to tie. And I know we've done it with the American Museum of, of Fly Fishing. We've done a couple uh, Zoom, Facebook oh, yeah. Live, different things. And they've been really well received, like 7,000 hits in the first 15 minutes with oh, wow. people watching it multiple times. They're like, these people are watching it multiple times. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's but it you know i I think you could uh the hilliards book uh the Carrie Stevens book, um that's got a lot of um construction methods they they tried to break hers down, but there's really nothing like being able to be with somebody or able to ask a question while something's going on, yeah. because it's right. so, you know i I feel lucky I was a teacher that. There are a lot of times when I just, I'm able to break it down an extra level because I'm like, hey, you know, if you don't get this part right at the very beginning, then you're really going to have a lot of trouble. Because one of the first problems I see in fly tying uh, these classic streamers is that everyone tries to assemble all the materials at the head right behind the eye. And yeah. really what Carrie Stevens, Mike Martinique, and every, all these other tires did was they did something almost like shingling a house. Hmm. When I start a classic streamer, my thread starts about two wooden match heads back from the eye. Mm-hmm. And that's where I start laying my materials on because I build one material goes a little bit further towards the eye than the last material because if you have everything at the very be- at the very
3: yep. head of the it's fly
1: huge. yeah it's, it's not only huge but when you finish tying it you can take your fingers pinch it and rotate it right around and pull it right off
2: oh right yeah you're doing the overlap that's a great tip so you kind of doubly reinforcing it and stuff when you're dealing with stuff like some of this it has a throat of bucktail right that's hard that's not the easiest stuff to tie in
1: yeah, like I'm. I got a fly right now in the vice that I'm uh, that I'm working on, and um, a, a blue uh, dragon. Yeah, and it's got four peacock curl, and then it's got white bucktail, and then it's got orange um, hackle, and then it's got blue hackle, and that's the bottom. That's just the bottom. We're not. Oh, even that's, the put, yeah, that's the bottom. Yeah, that's underbelly and the throat. How is the hackle
2: when you say blue hackle, uh, or the under, or it's under, so you're not, you're not spinning that hackle all the way around, or are you spinning? No, it it's t- just the throat. It's just like a little. Throat. So you're t- You're ripping off some fibers and then you're tying in those fibers. Yep. Take it
1: off, of, uh, uh, you know, a nice piece of hewing hen, and, uh, but each level is, is a little bit forward. Each material is a little forward of the last material. And, um, it's, uh, and I think I, I honestly think, and someone probably will correct me cause there are the, the, the police out there. They love yeah. to troll the internet. Oh, yeah. And, and
2: Yeah. I call
1: them the pattern police, but they, you know. Right. I,
2: so who are the pattern, the pattern police, when I think of this, uh, Scott, the pattern police, I mean, you could be the pattern police cause you know, more, more, I mean who are these people that are the police if you're, if it's not you.
1: Yeah. I don't know. They, you know, they, they might've been connected to a tire way back when or they learned a certain way and they just don't want to budge off, uh, you know, their what they know. And they, this is a very, very true story. I was tying, um, I had taught, developed a pattern uh, called the, um, uh, the Hampshire warden. One of my friends who I mentioned before, Rick Estes was a game warden and he had, done the um district chief and what he did was it was a streamer pattern that was fashioned off the game warden's day-to-day green uniform in, in New Hampshire and um they also have this beautiful red uniform and so I came up with the New Hampshire warden which had the the base of it was the red there was also a fellow from Maine named Charlie Mann who had the main game warden fly. These are, you know, they're beautiful flies. I'm sure they would catch fish, but they're, they're more of a presentation fly. Well, I was at a show, and um, I had one of those flies that I developed, the Hampshire Warden, sitting on my table in a, in a frame. And some guy came over, and he started in and had an audience with him on how I didn't know how to tie that fly. And hmm. he just went on and on about, you don't know what you're doing. And, on your own fly,
2: on the fly you invented.
1: Yeah, he had no idea. He had no idea the connection between me and that fly. <laughs> and finally, someone grabbed him and said, you know, I don't remember what his name was. said, that's Scott. He was the one who developed that fly. And the guy just turned around and walked away. Yeah. And, you know, I never yeah. really negatively comment on anybody on the internet in there. No. And no. Uh, Cause I want, you know, you're, they're doing their best at this. Yeah. You know, some of these people, will you know, they'll send me a picture and they'll say, Oh, I was so inspired to tie this fly that you, you posted on the internet. And you know, what does it look like? And, and I'm like, what, a, you did a great job. And I try to find the three best things of the fly. And say, these are the three best things. And if you want to work on one little thing next time, try this.
3: Mm -hmm. And
1: so, you know, there's that, there are those, the pattern police and they, they get out there and they, you know, they look at the the flies and, you know, that's not right because of this. And yeah, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, but that's the way it goes.
0: Deddy Flies was established in 1928 and is the oldest family-run shop in the country. We've got another uh, historic, history-filled episode here. And it's just another reminder of the good history that Deddy has going and has had going on for a long time. They're located in Livingston Manor on the banks of willow Creek. Deddy, it's your welcoming place online or on the creek. Deadly Fly's inventory consists solely of products that meet every angler's demand for high-quality service. And, of course, they offer fly fishing, casting, and guided trips. For more information, head over to wetflyswing.com slash Or you can give them a call at 845-439-1166. That's wetflyswing.com D-E-T-T-E. Check them out right now.
2: I love the tip. I, you've mentioned a few, the, the scaling or the shingling of the fly. That's a great yep. tip. And um, we've yep. talked in the past about the hair wing, tying that on, because that's a big challenge. Are there any other couple of tips you might throw out there if somebody's trying to tie these that are common struggles?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of times when they assemble these flies, one of the things that they do is they don't glue the wings together. And that yeah. was what Carrie Stevens did. She had to glue the wings, and she used, you know, She used, I'm sure, some lacquer uh, or nail polish.
2: Like head cement or something
1: like that. Yeah. Um, I happen to use, I've tried a bunch of different things, and I happen to use Tear Mender, which is a uh, latex based um, fabric Mm. uh, repair. And for me, I like it. It can get gummed up a little bit quick. You have to kind of, you know, work your way through using it a little bit. And once you get the method down, it really works. I used to use a, some stuff called fabric fusion, but I actually assemble a Rangeley style fly using those. So like the fly I'm tying right now, it's got two orange inner wings with a shorter blue outer wing and then it's going to have a, a tan and white piece of partridge for the shoulder. All four of those feathers are are all glued together. Um, and then I put the jungle cock eye on um, after I get the wings mounted. I, I think Carrie Stevens actually had her jungle cock glued together when she put it on, but I oh. I kind of like to fuss with that at the end a little bit. That's just my,
2: my... Yeah, walk through that real quick on the gluing. So basically, you have these feathers, you're matching them up like you match two feathers or yep. four feathers. Yeah, I match
1: them up. And match them up. And then what do you do? Then I put like I'll take like the two orange feathers, I'll, I'll maybe on this fly, I run the tear mender from where the stem becomes bare up into along that stem. I'll run that tear mender, maybe say, you know, uh, no more than uh, between a quarter and a half inch up. Um, It's all going to be covered by the shoulder anyways, and it all dries clear. Um, So I'll run a small bead and then I'll, press the two orange feathers together making sure the tips are lined up perfect and then I'll run another bead on top of that orange second orange feather and then I'll put the blue on the blue feather on top of that and press it together and then I'll take the partridge shoulder which is shorter and I'll run that maybe a quarter inch of the mender up and then I'll put the the partridge feather on it and then it'll dry as fast as by the time I do the opposing wing and glue that one together. Yeah. And and then that just uh then sometimes the tire will uh will put some tear mender in between the insides of the wings when they when they mount them on the on the fly, but oftentimes you don't need to do that. If you if you build your wing correctly you put the opposing wing on first, and then you bring the um, the near side wing up and assemble that. And when you put the wings on, because remember, they're going on on the side of the hook, um, I just put two wraps to put my first, my opposing wing on. So I have, I have the, the far side wing on. It's held just gently in with two wraps. Then I put the near side wing on hold that in with two wraps, and I kind of take a look at it. How's it How's it mounted? Does it look good? Are the tips lined up? Do I have to make any adjustment? Then I repinch everything with my fingers, and then I wrap towards the eye, and that's when I really snug it in. I usually bring a wrap around and then pull straight, straight up with my bobbin two or three times, and that really sets it in place. And um, But if you over... You know, if you try to put too much tension on the round stems before you have them in position, then they start to roll all over the place. And, you know, you really, uh. that's what, that, that's the part when you said, how do you learn? That's the part that it's really hard in a YouTube video. Somebody doesn't want to take the time to explain that because they'll lose their audience. A lot of those YouTube videos, people want to see the fly constructed. Boom, front to back. Boom, oh, that's great. Now I'm going to do it. But they don't get the in-between piece that that tire knows how to do. They just didn't want to take the time to explain it because they would a lot, people would have said, "Quick, I'm going to the next video. And,
2: oh, right, right, right. Well, you, you know who does a good job of that we had on was Tim Flagler.
1: Oh, Tim, he does a great job. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah, we talked about that. We we mentioned I was asking about that, and he said the one thing a lot of people miss out there on YouTube and, the, and these tight things is that they don't cover all the steps. And he has multiple views, so you'll see him setting up. Like this would be, I'm sure, example where he would set up you know, show you not on the vice, but down below how he's gluing these wings. Right. That's and he said that's like 50 percent of the pattern.
1: Right. And it, and that is a great comment, because when I've done these Zoom meetings for people, one of the things that I've done for them is before the meeting, I actually produce a small video with still pictures that I send the club or whatever the group is and say, this is how the wing assembly looks. Don't do it yet, but read this because when I ref- you're going to be looking at this while I'm doing it, so you can refer to it and actually see it. And I will tell you, some of these English fly tires, they are you know they are classic salmon Irish salmon tires, and they right. you know understand construction, and in a matter of two weeks. They have nailed how to tie a Rangley streamer because they just listen. They use their previous tying uh, experience. And one thing that they found is they will say, oh, I didn't realize how important the right feathers were. Yeah. You know, like there's a company in uh, 54 Dean Street. They're in uh, Italy and they sell Ewing's Feathers. And they got hammered by all these guys because they wanted to learn how to tie these flies. And they, they got the feathers. They were tying it with just you know strung saddle. It was a mess. They couldn't figure out why their wings went mild. And then they got the right the right saddles, and they're like, holy cow, these now I can tie these these flies. So I tell everyone to hook you you know you want to tie flies. You, the most important thing is your vise. Your hook and your scissors, and then you got to get good materials. But if you don't have the first three, you can have the best materials in the world, and you're gonna be messed.
2: Mess up. What's your what's your vice, Scott? Give us your what are you using there for a vice?
1: I've always used a Regal. I have a Regal rotor, uh, Revolution right now. Um, I've always used Regals because uh, they just they grab the hook and hold it, and there's not a lot of fussing. Yeah, um, they were easy. a local company and, uh, there are other great vices out there. Um, you know, yep. HMH is yep. a great vice, uh, you know, and, uh, but I've always
2: used the Regal. Me too. Yeah. I love the Regal. I've got a few vices, but I, uh, yeah, the Regal's just always been so simple, you know, it's just like yep. easy and, and simple. What's the, and we got the Parker's hook and then the scissors. What, what's your go-to scissors?
1: Yeah. Um, Sprite, uh, which is part of Partridge, and they have a line of hooks. I probably should have said, you know, the Partridge hooks or the Heritage hooks. They have all the, the yep. hooks. And Sprite is their Sprite is a line that is, um, um, you know, more affordable. Well, Sprite's got a whole line of, uh, of uh, tools, and they have a nice uh, pair of scissors. I, um, I've been using um, the scissors from uh, the Copler ones. I think that's the the from. Italy, um, those are really nice. They're uh, they're uh, great little scissors,
2: um, copper ones. I've used,
1: you know, some stainless ones from Doctor Slick and
2: exactly. There's a ton of like that. There's so many different great tools out there. It's it's always I always it's interesting for me just to hear what people are using. So that that gives us a little um, a little snippet on. It. So I I want to yeah, get no, back, but is, I do yeah.
1: I do. I will say one thing about scissors.
2: I do have multiple pairs and I have some
1: that I use for like cutting bucktail and I have some that I use for trimming the end work on flies. So, I mean, that's the one thing that I think makes a difference is that you don't use your scissors that you're trying to trim the last bits before you, you know, lay your head in. Um, You don't want them to be the ones that you're cutting wire and bucktail with uh, because it gets really, really dull quick. Um, so I have multiple scissors that I use for, you know, different
2: processes. So Okay. And before we wrap it up out of here, I wanted to touch on um, – I want to just finish that list of people we talked about. But um, I'm curious on the fly. So are people out there with these classic flies still, you know, is it just a small little subset of people fishing for salmon or, you know, these landlocked salmon out there? Or are most people using kind of more of these newer kind of um, articulated and, and more – Uh, I'm trying, you know what I mean? Like, are there still lots of people using these long?
1: uh, You know what I think? Uh, Honestly, I think they're, um, uh, I think when, when you see some of the new uh, different materials and different products that are out there, I think people jump at that. They vacillate. That's the new, that's the new yeah, um, you yeah know, that's a new thing. the best. You know, we got to go get that. That's the Mercedes Benz or whatever. Yeah. Um, so we're going to go after that, and that's the way to go. But in the end, the classic Rangeley streamers have stood the test of time. And they are the ones that I am shocked to hear people come back and tell me that they took all these different flies up and the one that worked was, you know, the one Indian rock, you know, they just said, you know, I fished everything and none of them worked. Uh, it was just this one fly and I fished it and prayed I wouldn't lose it because that was the only one that worked was catching fish. And, you know, so yeah, I mean, and, the ten, the ten top could be changed by the the temperature of the water. The exactly.
2: That, you know, but um, this was just kind of a a little bit of a, a taste for people out there. You know, and obviously Kerry Stevens' name comes up a ton. You know, always. And I was kind of thinking too on this line of. You know, I think of steelhead fishing, you know, I've done some stuff in the past up in, you know, especially up in BC when I first kind of got going using these really long three-aught, four-aught hooks. But there's been a change in some of the fishing there. Uh, You know, the fact that those long hooks, when they get in a fish, they can kind of, because of the long shank hook, it can kind of do some damage. And I was curious if, you know what I mean, if that's something you've thought about and if maybe that's why people are going away from this.
1: Yeah. And I, well, well, the salmon, uh, the landlocked salmon up here have a very um, tender jaw and they have a really hard time uh, repairing an injury to their jaw. And a lot of times somebody will hook a salmon and it won't be the legal length and they'll let it go and they've injured the jaw. And then someone will recatch that salmon and the salmon never grew. Because mm. it spent all its energy trying to close that wound in its mouth. And, um, and, it's, and the wound's still there. It just couldn't fix it. So what we do is the barbs are all crushed on the, on the hooks before they're fished. And, again, that's one of the things I think I would really pound my fist on the table and say, you know, when you crush the barb on a partridge uh, streamer hook, it's not going to break and a lot mm. of the um, lesser quality uh, hooks out there when you, when you crimp the barb, it actually breaks the, it, it, it makes it weaker. That's becomes the weakest spot in that hook. But if you do play the fish correctly, and if you do uh, remove the hook correctly, then you're going to be in pretty good shape and not injure the fish. It's not, like a, um, a, a big large mouth that will inhale a bass bug down to its um, colon, for crying out loud, yeah. because, you know, it's so hungry. These salmon are pretty much hooked in the, in the mouth. Uh, and, you know, in some places in Maine, they want you to take every salmon you catch out of the lake because there's too many salmon in the, in the lake. And that's how they manage the resource. Um, but here in New Hampshire, you know, you're limited to how many fish you, you can take and, and what the length is. Um but you just have to there's a salmon angler's pledge here in in, in um, New England that you can take and it just it explains, you know, you gotta do some things to manage the resource here. You know, you don't you gotta use a rubber net when with these fish. You gotta, you know, be careful when you're unhooking them and you just you you know, you gotta be smart. And I think most fly anglers really want the the resource to remain
2: so yeah um what's well, yeah i think it's education i think it's education piece yeah. people don't sometimes they don't yep. know you know and that's why the education comes in do you think i love that you went on this track you know I'd like to take it out here just with kind of the, you know, the conservation kind of minute here, if you can. I mean, are there any, like, in your neck of the woods, you've mentioned, you know, New England, Northeast part, you know, a lot. Is there any conservation uh, or nonprofit you'd like to shed some light on here as we take it out of here?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll kick one off. We we have a, a group here in New Hampshire, and, and they have them in, all, in a lot of the states, but it's called Operation Gain Thief. And basically it's a... Um, it's an organization that's out there, uh, produces a lot of information on, you know, uh, signage on, you know, different specific rules and regulations, but it's a, it's a link between the, uh, law enforcement and of the game wardens and the public. If you see somebody, you know, taking over their limit or mm-hmm. mismanaging, you know, whether it's hunting mm-hmm. or fishing or, you know, lobsters from, from, uh, you can call this number and, um, you know, produce it, you know, give a tip and, um, they'll, mm-hmm. you know, they'll get right on it. And I'll tell you that this group works hard, um, to get the information out. And, you know, there are national organizations Trout unlimited and different groups like yeah. that, that have a bigger resource, but some of these smaller organizations that are operating in, you know, their own state. Maine has one, we have one, Vermont has Mm -hmm. one you know, they're really out there and I, and I, and I know a lot of the fly anglers because they really want to be able to go out and catch fish all the time. They, you know, if it's fly fishing only and they see somebody dunking a worm, um, they'll pick that phone up and call the 800 number and boom.
2: Yep. That's our operation game thief. Correct. Yeah, I'll put a we'll get a number, a phone number in for that if people are up in that neck, your neck of the woods. So cool, Scott. Well, I think uh, I feel pretty good. I think on our list we had um, we went down when we were talking about the flies. I think, uh, you know, like half of them were were Carrie Stevens. I guess that's kind of what it's all about. She's she's kind of the big name. And then you've got Jim Warner and a few other people. But really, there's not a ton of people of those really big names that everybody knows about out there.
1: Yeah, no, and the ones that just had the ones or twosies, they you know, they were great flies for their area and whatnot. And um, you know, they're you know, they uh there's nothing wrong with not, not downplaying them, but uh or they just didn't get popularized or didn't you know, didn't have the uh you know, Carrie was lucky. She was you know, her real estate was right in the lakes region of Maine where there was just so much fishing going on and it was just you know, the brook trout were huge, the salmon were huge and you know, it was the right time, you know, it was like the 1980 Olympic hockey team, right? Everything came together perfect, you know, and, and, and so, uh, you know, that's the way it is. So her stuff is the stuff that everyone remembers. And a lot of things were copied off of or modeled off of that. And, um, you know, that's why so many of her flies are still the most popular ones.
2: That's why it's it. And we'll leave, uh, maybe more of that conversation for a future episode to dig in uh, more specifically to uh, you know, more of stuff. But this has been great, Scott. I'll, I'll also note uh, we had an episode way back, episode eight, uh, <laughs> many years ago now with uh, Darren from Piscator Flies. And he had this program he talked about. It was called um, Streamers 365.
1: Right. He had the books produced and everything. Yeah, yeah, he did a great job with that. Yeah. He, he had a lot of those flies in there are historic flies of, Carrie Stevens and different tires. But if you go through that, all the three sixty five, I bet you most of the flies, you know, the, the historic ones were hers.
2: Oh, and really? Then
1: everything else ban- branches off that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So that's it. So literally it all starts with the, this period. And when was Carrie Steve just quickly, what, what was her, like her, you know, period? Yeah. What was her period? I'm looking at her book here. Does it say? I'm trying to think.
1: Uh, uh 18, it says 1882 to 1970.
2: Oh, wow. 1882. Wow. So that's, that's like her, she was born.
1: Yeah. She must've been born in 82. So you're talking early 1900, uh, early 19, probably 1920s, different things like that. That's when, uh, yeah, when, yeah, 1924, I'm seeing different things, uh, written here in the book with the, you know, and, and, you know, and and I'm sure there's a ton of patterns out there. I, I know Leslie Hilliard told me this once. I was looking for there's a, a pattern called um, the bee pond. And it was a wet fly. And it is a little pond up in Rangeley Bee Pond and it was Great Brook Trout Salmon Pond. And and he said that Kerry Stevens tied thirty Bee Pond streamers commissioned for a group of fly tires, our fly fishers down in Massachusetts. And I said, oh, what's the recipe, he goes, Scott? We've never been able to find it. And he said, I'm probably looking at that fly somewhere in all the ones I have of hers, but we can't nail and connect that it's really the bee pond streamer fly. Yeah. So there's so much still out there, we don't even know.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Well, that's a good way to leave it off. That there's more that we'll dig into later. So we'll uh, we'll send everybody out for you to nhflytire.com, and uh, they have questions for you. But uh, yeah, I just want to thank you, Scott, for coming on and sharing some some wisdom and history on on streamers. And uh, yeah, looking forward to keeping in touch. Okay, thanks, Dave.
0: So there it is. There it is. Another one down in the books. Sealing the deal. Wetflyswing.com/slash three twenty six. 326 if you want to get the show notes, the links, and uh, maybe a bonus video if you check it out right now. Listener spotlight. I want to give a spotlight out to Dick Sargent. I chatted with Dick on the phone on the phone this week and had a great conversation. I got a little insight into his steelhead and spade journey. Sounds like he is having a lot of fun out there. Um, he's actually up out of Massachusetts and has, uh, has been hitting some good some good steelhead water, and has been uh, refining his craft with the trout spay. So it was really cool to hear that. So Dick, I want to thank you for being a listener of the podcast. I want to give you a super big virtual fist bump right now. Boom. Okay, as always, you can check us out. If you are on Spotify, uh, would love it, love it, love it if you can uh, share that out. I'm not sure if they make it easy, but if you can do that, that would be great and uh and yeah we're gonna be moving on to the next one and i appreciate you for hanging in with us all the way to the end hope uh hope you check out the next episode we have coming and uh, if you get a chance send me an email dave at wetflyswing.com would love to hear hear if you had a chance to listen to this episode looking forward to seeing you on the water or online
2: thanks for listening to the wet fly swing fly fishing show For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.